Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Good morning. I'm going to be reading from Matthew 11:25 through 30. I'm going to say, this is the word of the Lord, and if you could respond with, thanks be to God. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Hey, Aaron. Good to see you. That's what Aaron always does. He always is acknowledges someone who he didn't know was here and makes them feel awkward. <laughs> so, um, so we are looking at quite an incredible passage um, this morning and an invitation from Jesus that uh, if we will see it for what it is, 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 is some of the, the most these are some of the most gracious, incredible words that Jesus ever spoke to us. Um, yesterday, I, I partook in this crazy thing called the Murph Challenge, and it's basically this long workout. And at the end of it, at the beginning of it, you run a mile. At the end of it, you run a mile. At the end of it, you've done so much stuff. By the time you get to this last mile that your legs feel like they're going to fall off. I mean, you... You have to will your feet forward every single step. And at the end of it, I remember just feeling like there is no way I can get to the finish of this thing. Like my legs just won't, there's no way they're going to keep moving. And, uh, and you know, you, but, but lo and behold, you get to the end. And, um, and maybe, maybe you can relate. Maybe you've done some kind of a workout or exercise that just brought you to the very brink of exhaustion, just to the end of your physical stamina and strength, or maybe you've helped somebody move before and you've, you've carried something heavy, you know, for a, for a length of time. There's been a lot of moving happening in our church lately. And maybe you, you know, you're, you're carrying something to the point to where your fingers are just, they feel like they're going to fall off. Your forearms are burning, your legs are burning, and you say, just a little bit more, just a few more steps. I got to let this thing go, right? And, and you've been to that place of your physical limits, or maybe you have worked a long week and you felt like there's no way I can, I can do another work day without a day off. There's no way I can study for another test. There's no way I can take another shift. I have got to rest. I have got to stop. And we know what that feels like for our bodies to come to, to their brink, to the point to where we desperately need to stop. We've just got to rest there's no more going. But what Jesus is, is saying to us is that our souls also have limits. 
that our souls actually need rest, that our souls, the, the part of you, the real you, the part of you that's going to live on for eternity, that that part of you can actually become so weary, so burdened, that you've got to have rest. And so what does it mean to be weary of soul? It's not the same thing as physical exhaustion. You can have, you can have a ton of energy and be in perfect health and yet have a very weary soul. And vice versa, you can actually have your, your health failing and be struggling with your health and actually have a very healthy, very happy, very energized soul. So what is it to have a weary soul? Well, a weary soul is the soul that is weighed down by the things in this life. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel that. Maybe you feel uh, the, the weight of guilt. Maybe you, you haven't even given yourself enough time to process this, but when you stop and slow down for long enough to process it, you feel that you're not right before God. Maybe, maybe you recognize when you slow down that there's something, that there is a block between you and the God who made you, and that you know that you're guilty before Him. And when you get that sense, it, it, it produces in you this desire to do something, to do something good, to make, to make yourself more acceptable in his sight. And, and so this can go on and on and on and on to the point where you're trying to earn your way into God's favor and it will cause your soul to be exhausted. Or maybe you're here and you're experiencing another kind of weariness of soul. There's another kind of weariness that, that feels more like emptiness. It feels more like numbness to this life. And that oftentimes we feel, especially in our culture today, because uh, we have so many ways, so many options that we, can, that we can distract ourselves from dealing with the pain that's within. And so we numb ourselves with, with drink or with drugs or with entertainment, with our phones or with busyness because we don't want to face this emptiness within us, this aimlessness that we feel, this burnout that we feel, this emotional deadness. Or maybe you are carrying the weight in your soul of depression. You know what it is to feel despair. You know what it is to feel hopeless and afraid and discouraged. And these are great and heavy burdens to carry for your soul. Whatever the case, whatever the burden is, this sermon, these words from Jesus, they are for you who have a weary soul. Jesus is going to give us an invitation for those of us who feel our weariness of soul, he's offering to give us rest. So pray with me. We're going to dive into the passage together. Lord, you, you are so other than us. You are so different than us. You are so much more kind and gentle meek 
than any king who has ever lived. And we see you wrongly so often, Lord Jesus. Would you open our eyes to see you correctly this morning? Would you open our eyes to see our own souls correctly, our own need correctly this morning? Would you give us insights and revelations into who we are and what we need, what we're needing, and into what you are offering, and ultimately into who you are, Lord? Help us to see your glory, your beauty, your goodness, so that we would run to you and that nothing would keep us from you. We ask, Holy Spirit, teach us, open up your word to us, make our hearts receptive to it. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, um, let me kind of lay out the context a little bit here, um, briefly. So, in the beginning of this passage, it says, at that time, Jesus declared. So, that's verse uh, 25. We're in Matthew 11, verse 25. At that time. So, this is happening at the same time as what he just preached right before this. And right before this, Jesus has been talking about the cities in which it says in verse 20, most of his mighty works had been done. And in these cities where most of his mighty works had been done, they rejected him. They didn't believe that he was the Christ. And so he denounces these cities because they didn't believe and they didn't repent. They didn't, to repent means to turn away from your sins, to turn away from doing life your way, and to turn to God. And so he denounces these cities because even though he did incredible miracles in their midst, they still didn't believe and they didn't repent. And then after he's talked about this, He says, it says, at that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. In in Luke's account of the same same story, Luke says that he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And so this is more than just a statement that he's making. He's celebrating, he's praising, he's worshiping the Father. Why? What is it that is producing in him this spontaneous joy, this praise back to the Father. What is it? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things. What things? You've hidden the reality of who I am, who Jesus is, he's saying, from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Who are the wise and understanding? Well, he's talking about these these cities. In verse 23, he says, And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? Capernaum thought very highly of themselves. So this is us. This is America. This is is Burlington. It's, It's those who see themselves as having it pretty figured out. This is the 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 well educated, the the elite in their minds, right? This is those who have it together. They're contributing to their 401k. They are take they're keeping up with their car payments. They're they're man, they have a well-manicured yard. They've got it together and they know it. 
And he says, oh, Father, you've hidden these things from them. And you've revealed it to little children. For such was your grace, gracious will, or so it pleased you. It pleased you to do this. So this is the context. Jesus is rejoicing in the Father's free and sovereign choice to reveal his identity to whom he will. And he says, and you have given me the freedom to reveal you, to reveal the Son to whomever I choose. And so this is the context. He's, he's saying there are, there are some who, they're so proud that they, that they cannot see. They're so, they believe that they have no need, and so they cannot see. But those, those who see, those who have been humble enough to see their need, they see who I am. And then he, in, in the midst of this, he gives this invitation. And that's what we're going to really focus the majority of the sermon on. We're going to look at this invitation in verses 28 through 30, this come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. We're going to look at that and consider that. But first of all, I just want to ask the question, who is it that is giving this invitation? Who, who, who is it that's making the offer? Let's, let's just consider that briefly. He says in, uh, in verse 26, or I'm sorry, verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. This is the very Son of God. This is God incarnate, like we just sung. This is God who has come to earth, become a man, and walked among us. This is the very king of the universe. He has just said, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, whom he just said is Lord of heaven and earth. So who is making this offer? Who's giving this offer? The king of the universe. The one who actually can make good on any and all of his promises. This is the one with all global authority. This is the one with all authority over heaven and earth, seen and unseen. That means he has authority over rulers and powers and principalities, over the domain of darkness, over angels, and he has authority over all of humanity, over all of the earth, over every leader, every president, every government, every country. That's the one who's making this offer. And what we're going to find is the way that he describes himself is astonishing in light of this. So he makes an offer. What is the offer that Jesus makes? He's giving the offer of rest for our souls. At the end of verse 29, he says, 
you will find rest for your souls. So when he's saying, come to me, you who labor and are heavy laden, he's talking about souls that are heavy laden, souls that are burdened, and he's offering a soul rest. That's what he is offering. And the question that should come to our minds is, how does a person's soul rest? How does a soul, which has no, which has no physicality to it, rest? How does a soul rest? Well, the Bible tells us, first of all, there are some things we need to know. The Bible tells us that we were born enslaved. We were born enslaved. And that isn't a physical enslavement. It is a spiritual enslavement. It is an enslavement of soul. The Bible says that we were born under the domain of darkness. We were enslaved to the lowercase g, God of this world, to do His will. Sons of disobedience, the Bible calls us dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved not only to the domain of darkness, but all who are enslaved to the domain of darkness are also enslaved to their own passions, their own human desires, enslaved to our own sinful tendencies. You say, no, I feel free to do whatever I want. You are free to do whatever you want, but what you want is sin. What you want is always selfish until He changes us. And so in that way, we are enslaved to our own desires, enslaved. And, in, and all the while we think we're so free, we're actually doing exactly what the ruler of the domain of darkness wants us to do. And so the first thing we need to know is that these souls of ours, in order to find rest, they've got to be free. How is that going to happen? This is why Jesus came to earth. So if you've never heard this good news, let me just give it to you in a nutshell. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the perfect Son of God, came to earth, lived a perfectly righteous life, died in our place. Because our sins, our rebellion against a holy God, deserve punishment, deserve the wrath of God. And so Jesus said, I will take that, I will take that on myself. And he went to the cross, and this is why Jesus died on the cross. Maybe you've heard he died, but you don't know why. This is why. He died in order to rescue you because you were enslaved to the domain of darkness. He died to set you free. How is he going to do that? He had to pay the price. He had to pay a ransom, if you will. He had to pay the price of a slave. And that is called redemption. Redemption. Listen to what Colossians 1, 13 through 14 says. He, Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The price involved paying for the sins that we committed. And so this is why Jesus died on the cross. He died to pay for all of our sins. 
He took the punishment, the full payment for our sins on the cross. He was buried, and on the third day, he rose again to new life, to offer new life to all who would believe in him and trust in him. And those who do are transferred out of the domain of darkness into his kingdom. So that is redemption. That's the first thing your soul has to have to find rest. The second thing that your soul has to have in order to find rest is righteousness. Because just because you've been set free doesn't mean that you're right in the eyes of God yet. And so Jesus, in his death on the cross, in his burial, in his resurrection, when we believe in him, when we look to him and trust his work on the cross, guess what happens? Not only is our, not only is our payment paid and our sins are forgiven, but also his righteousness, the perfect life that he lived, is transferred to our account, credited to our account, so that we're not just free, but we are righteous. How did he do it? He fulfilled the will of God. See, in the beginning of this book, the beginning of the whole story of human history, the first humans in a garden said, not your will, God, but mine. And then a few thousand years later, Jesus, the Son of God, came, and in a garden, he said, not my will, but yours. And that's what it looks like to perfectly obey. Jesus continually and perfectly submitted himself to the Father in obedience. And so that perfect obedience, that perfect righteousness gets credited to us so that our souls are not just free, not just redeemed, but righteous. And finally, another R, because why not? (laughs) Now that we've been set free, now that we've been made righteous, he offers us reconciliation to the God who made us. Now because we're no longer enslaved, and now because we have a righteousness that's not our own, we can come into the presence of a perfect and holy God, standing before Him, blameless. He reconciles us to the Father. This is what our souls are perpetually longing for. David said it this way, My soul pants for God, for the living God. St. Augustine said it this way, Our hearts are restless until they find their rest in Him. And so, if you put your faith in Jesus, you are invited into the presence of the living God where your soul can be satisfied. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience his goodness. This is what's being offered to you. Redemption, righteousness, and reconciliation with your creator. It's this that we are looking for when we turn to drugs, to alcohol, to the sinful relationship, to the movie we weren't supposed to watch, to the, you name it. 
this is what we're ultimately after. And he says, I'll satisfy your soul. I'll reconcile you to God, the one who made you for himself. So that is what he offers. I want to look at who he's offering this to. Look at verse 28. He says, come to me, who? All who labor and are heavy laden. He's making this offer to those who labor and are heavy laden. That word labor might be in your Bible translated all who are weary. It is the same thing. Um, to, to, to be weary or to labor, this word, it means to be exhausted, burdened, and grieving. Jesus is saying, if you are burdened of soul, come to me. If you are weary of soul, come to me. Here's the reality. All people are weary and burdened of soul, but only some of us recognize it. Only some of us can see it. And that, as we just looked at briefly in the few verses before this, is because He graciously allows us to see it. He hides these things from some. He reveals these things to others. So friend, if you feel your weariness of soul, if you can feel your need this morning, then there is a good God in the heavens who is at work in your life. He is drawing you to Himself. He offers this to those who feel their weariness, their heavy burden. It seems that the more affluent the the community is, the harder it is for us to see our weariness of soul. This is why the gospel takes root so quickly in poorer communities and nations, because where we have all the things, all the gadgets, all the fun, all the stuff to keep ourselves busy, we can numb ourselves, we can, we can distract ourselves to death and never see how desperately needy we are. And so, for many of us, this is a warning. We need to slow down enough to see our need. He doesn't say, come to me, but first, unburden your soul. He doesn't say, come to me, but first, get your act together, please. He doesn't say, come to me, but you're going to have to clean some things up first. I don't take people like you. What does he say? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. What he is saying is that your burden is actually the thing that qualifies you to come to me. Try coming to me without your heavy burden? No. I want you to come with your burden. It's that that qualifies you to come. Jesus is not looking for those with cleaned up lives, those who have it all together. That's not who he builds his kingdom with. In the Old Testament, there are examples 
foreshadowings of Christ. We call them types of Christ. And one type of Christ is this king named David. And David, he's, he's this young, new king who God chooses and anoints. And before he's actually established as the king, the old king, King Saul, is so jealous of him, he wants to kill him. So just like Jesus, this guy is, is being hunted by the elite, the, by the leadership of the day. Just like Jesus. But he's been anointed. He's the king. He just needs to establish his kingdom. But in the meantime, he's got to stay alive. And so David runs. He escapes. And he hides out in this cave. And word gets out that the new king, the newly anointed king, is, is hiding out. And what the Bible tells us is that it isn't the movers and shakers who gather around David. It's not the successful and wealthy and powerful who gather around David. They have way too much to lose if they are to go and join David. That's not who gathers around David. Listen to what it says in 1 Samuel 22, verses 1 through 2. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And what we find when we continue to read the story is it's that it's these who came to him, who became David's mighty men, who became his greatest warriors. It's these that David establishes his kingdom with, just like Jesus, just like Jesus, who says, come to me, all you who are weary of this world, who are weary of this life who are distressed with this life. Come to me who see the brokenness of this life. Come to me, you who are sinners. Come to me, fishermen and tax collectors and prostitutes, and I will build my kingdom with you. Jesus is a different kind of king. So he calls those to him who recognize that their souls are weary, that they're carrying a weight they can't bear. He calls those to him who come to him like little children. He says in verse 25 that the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children, to those who like a little child, admit their need. Admit that they are in need of help. That's what a child does. A child admits that they can't reach it. They can't fix it. They can't make it. They can't protect themselves. They have need, and they trust mommy or daddy is able. They don't question it. They just come to mommy and daddy and say, help. 
That's humility. But for some reason, we, as we get older, we suddenly begin to think we've got it, that we can do it, that we don't need any help, that we're independent, that we're capable, we've learned enough, we've done enough. And Scripture says, Matthew 18, 3, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is what it looks like to come to God. This is repentance. It is first acknowledging you are not great. And life isn't about you. It never was. And it's admitting that you thought it was all along and you've been living like it was all along and you got to stop that mess. And you got to turn to God, the one who made you, who designed you, created you for himself, who has plans for you, and to go to him and say, Daddy, help. This is what it looks like to enter into the kingdom of God. And so we come to him recognizing that we are weary and heavy laden, recognizing that we are actually like little children even though we thought we were all grown up. What must be done then to receive what's being offered, this rest for our souls? Look at what he says. In verse 28, he says, Come to me. Come to me. So this is, this word come, it's an imperative. It is, there is action that must be taken. Just like in the song that we were just singing, I will rise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. There is something that we need to do in response. We need to come to Jesus. In James it says that if we will draw near to him, he would draw near to us. We need to come to Jesus. We've seen who it is making the offer. He's the king of the universe. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. We've seen that he can make good on his promise. He can actually give rest to our weary souls. And so then we say, okay, I am going to come. We bring our burden with us. We humble ourselves like a child. We come. And then he says, take my yoke. Well, actually, let me back up a second. To come to Jesus is to believe that he is who he said he was. I mean, what he's just been talking about is the fact that these cities saw his mighty works and they didn't believe that he was the Messiah. So to come to Jesus is to believe that he is who he said he was. And he said he was the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior. So to come to him is to believe him. And then he says, he says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. So then what is this talking about? Take my yoke. I thought you just said, I would give you rest. Why are we talking about a yoke? A yoke, a yoke if you're not familiar, is a, is a farm tool that you put on an animal in order to use the animal for work. And so back in Bible times, a yoke was this big wooden thing, and it oftentimes would connect two animals together 
two oxen together so that um, they were both one and could do this work, usually to plow a field or pull a cart or something. And so Jesus has been talking about rest. What's he talking about taking this yoke? Well, what he's saying is there's actually some work to do. How many of you have ever had a a day off that you were looking forward to and you said, I just really need this day off. I just, I need this bad. And then you spent the whole day sitting on the couch doing absolutely nothing and thinking, this is what I needed. And at the end of the day, you look back on your day and you think, I feel worse than I did at the beginning of this day. I didn't do anything. Anybody ever had that experience? Why do we feel like that oftentimes at the end of a day of rest? It's because we were made to produce. We were made for work. Adam was tending the garden before the fall. We were made for work. To, to contribute, to do, to produce. And Jesus isn't saying, come to me and I will give you a couch to lay on. He's saying, come to me and I actually will give you purpose in this life. I will give you something to do that will last for eternity. I will give you a real reason for living. I will give you work. So there is a yoke. But it's not like the yoke you've been carrying. It's not like the burden you've been carrying. We're going to look at that. What what does it take for an animal to take a yoke? I want you to picture an ox that's never been in a yoke and that's young and kind of wild and kind of fighting, right? And in order for this ox to take the yoke, what must happen? It It has to submit. It has to lower its head. It has to bow in order to take the yoke. And so when Jesus says, take my yoke, a piece of this is surrender. It's submission. It's it's raising the white flag and saying, I'm done kicking against the goads. I'm done fighting against you. It's no longer my will but yours. And this is what happens when, when you have a young, inexperienced ox. What they would do is they would place this inexperienced ox with a more mature, experienced ox, an ox that knew the drill. And so they, they put this, this young, inexperienced ox in there. It has to humble itself and submit. And they put it in there with this mature ox. And at the beginning, this, this inexperienced ox doesn't know the drill. And so it's going along and it decides it would like some of that grass over there. And so it tries to pull. But the experienced mature ox says, nope, that's not what we're doing right now, buddy. We're walking this line. And so because they're yoked together, the more mature experienced ox is in control, leading the way. And in order to lead the way, this thing's having to use some pain, right? It's having to pull And eventually, over time, this inexperienced ox learns from the mature, experienced ox. That's what Jesus is is giving us a picture of when he says, take my yoke and learn from me. It's not just take this yoke or take a yoke, it's take my yoke so he's in it with us. He's saying, yoke yourself to me. 
Yoke yourself to me. I'll show you how to do this. Learn from me. What ends up happening eventually as the inexperienced ox gets more and more time with the mature ox is that he no longer has to be pulled here and there. He knows the drill. He keeps out of the corner of his eye the lead ox in his view and learns to walk in step. It says in Psalm 32, 8, I will instruct and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And then it says this, Do not be like horse or mule, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near to you. What God is after is nearness. And with an ox, with a mule, with a horse, they don't have understanding. And so they have to be kept under the will of the rider through pain, through a bit in its mouth. And God says, don't be like that. Don't be like that. Stay near to me and I'll lead you. And it's, it's a parallel to this, this yoking with Jesus. We don't need, we don't have to be brought into submission through pain, though he will because he loves us dearly as a father. He will discipline us. We can hear his voice saying, this is the way, walk in it and follow willingly. If we will keep our eye on him, we can learn to walk in step. So we take his yoke, we let him lead, and we follow. This is how Jesus lived his life. He says in in John 12, 50, that he only only said what he heard the Father say. He says in, in John 5, tell me if this doesn't sound like this whole analogy, my Father is working until now, and I am working. And then he says in verse 19, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Jesus yoked himself to the Father and said, I'll just do whatever you lead me to do. And then he says, yoke yourself to me, disciples, and I'll lead. And you follow. Get in step with me. We're not going to go any faster than I say go. We're not going to go any slower than I say go. We're going to stay on the path. This ends up permeating our lives. What we're talking about here is letting Christ empower your whole life. This begins to affect everything. You're working, you're eating, you're sleeping, you're resting, you're playing. Everything begins to be done in step with Jesus to the glory of God. So, he is inviting us to come, to take his yoke, to learn from him. What is it that gives us the confidence to come? Because there is an exchange here. We are, I was talking to a guy uh, two weeks ago, a couple weeks ago, sharing the gospel, rehashing the gospel with this guy, and he said, man, it just, it feels like 
feels like my whole life is going to change. And I said, that's right. It is. It is going to change. And he, he's counting the cost. He's counting the cost. But what he doesn't know is and you can't know, you can be told, but you can't know until you experience it, is that what happens is fullness of life. You lay down your life, yes, and there is loss, yes, but you gain everything in Christ. What gives us the confidence, though, at first to come to him, to take this new yoke, in verse 29, he tells us, first of all, what he is like. This is how we begin to have confidence. He says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This is actually the only place in all four Gospels where Jesus describes his own heart. So your heart is the center of who you are. It's the motivation center of your life. This is the core of who you are. And Jesus says, you want to know what I'm like at the very core of my being, at the very deepest level, I am gentle and lowly of heart. This is astonishing considering what he's just said. The Lord of heaven and earth, his Father, has given him all things. This king of the universe says, not I am powerful in heart, I am majestic in heart, I am wise in heart, while all of those things would be true, he boils his very nature down to this, I am gentle and lowly in heart. This word gentle occurs only three other times in the New Testament, and it sometimes is translated meek, sometimes translated humble, sometimes gentle. In this fantastic book, Gentle and Lowly, that's all sort of based around this passage by Dane Ortland, he says, he says that this word gentle means, quote, he is not trigger happy, not harsh, reactionary, or exasperated. Listen to this. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger, but open arms. Wow. It's incredible. His gentleness, his meekness. He is lowly in heart. Again, in gentle and lowly, he breaks down this word lowly, and this is what he says about it. Dane Ortland says, the point in saying that Jesus is lowly is that he is accessible. For all his resplendent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. The minimum bar to be enfolded into the embrace of Jesus is simply open yourself up to him. It is all he needs. Indeed, it is the only thing he works with. Come to him like a little child, admitting your need that you are weary and heavy laden. So this is what 
gives us confidence to come to him is what he's like. He's gentle and lowly in heart. And then secondly, it's what following him is going to be like. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That word easy means fitting, useful, and good. It can also be translated kind. My yoke is kind. It's fitting. It fits on you. Put it on. It's also kind in the sense that he doesn't put the yoke on us and then sit back and watch, but he gets up under the load with us to bear the load that we cannot. He carries the load. This is what it means to be in Christ, to abide in him. Paul put it this way, I work, but it is not me, but it is the energy, his energy, which is powerfully at work within me. He energizes our work. It is no longer I who live, Paul said, but Christ who lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is what it is to be yoked to Christ. It's to let him do the heavy lifting. So his yoke is easy. His burden is light. What does that mean? Well, there is a burden. In other words, there are expectations of his disciples. He doesn't say, come and follow me, but there's no, no expectations. He says, he says, if you love me, you will obey me. How is it that this burden can be light? In 1 John 5, 3, it says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. This is what it looks like to love God, that obeying his commandments are not burdensome. Love changes burdens into joy. There's a story in the, in the Old Testament in Genesis. This guy named Jacob, he's forced to serve for seven years before this father will give his daughter to him in marriage. Seven years. And this is what he says, what it says, Genesis 29, 20. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. He loved her so much that seven years went by like that. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey my commands. And 1 John says, and those commands will not be burdensome to you. You will delight in his law. You will delight in his commands. And if you're having trouble obeying then focus not on the obedience, but on the relationship. Focus on drawing near, and obedience will come. We've got to wrap this up. I want to ask you this. Are you burdened and weary of soul this morning? Do you you carry a weight of guilt upon you because you've never been made right with your Creator? Jesus beckons you to come. He beckons you. He looks at your sin. He looks at your weakness. He looks at your depression. He looks at your addiction. He looks at your mess, and he says, that's what draws me to you. I want you. He says, if you'll just see it, you're invited to come. And if you'll come, you'll find rest for your soul eternally. 
You can be set free, redeemed. You can be given righteousness. You can be reconciled to God. You can live in his kingdom forever. You can take his yoke. You can join him in his work. Your life can have purpose and meaning, and you can be satisfied. So I invite you to come to Jesus and believe in him this morning. Let's pray. Father, oh, I rejoice with your son that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and you have revealed them to little children. You choose, oh God, you choose to open our eyes, to illuminate our understanding, to help us to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, there is no one like you. There is no one so humble and yet so great. What you've done for us. Oh, what you've done for us. Thank you. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. You're worthy. You're worthy of the reward of your suffering. Lord Jesus, thank you for going to the cross for us. Thank you for suffering in our place. Thank you for taking our punishment. Thank you for offering us a place at the table, a place in your Father's house. Lord, help us to come to you over and over again, to submit ourselves, to to stay in the yoke with you. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.